And over the next two days, uh, I want to thank you again for being here for this opportunity. Uh, let me pray, and then we will launch into the first day of our study. Gracious God, we thank you for this opportunity to come and to be together, Lord, to dig deep into your word. We think long ago when this book was written and the circumstances that it addressed. And Lord, while they may in their specific nature be different than maybe what we face, in general, it is the same sort of things. And so over the next two days, Lord, and then as our brother John comes in tomorrow night and prepares to take us through First Timothy through the remainder of camp, pray that you would anoint our thinking and anoint our responding, Lord, that in all that we do, you would be pleased, you who are our rock and our redeemer. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Now, uh, have any of you read Second John? Have any of you taken five minutes out of your life and read Second John? It's not exactly a long book. In fact, it's the shortest book in the Bible. And uh, that probably gives you a clue why I chose it for the next two days, that we can dive deep into this book. And, and I think as we get into it, and, and if you've read it before, you perhaps are already aware of this, that it really is about a conflict between two values. And in this case, it, it is the value of hospitality versus maintaining the truth. Uh, I shared it at prayer meeting this morning that this past year I coached baseball, uh, seventh grade boys baseball at our local, uh, one of our local schools, and my son Jacob and I uh, coached together. And it put us in a place where we had to determine which value we were going to emphasize. There is, on the one hand, the value of uh, we want to train and, and teach these guys to be good baseball players when they get to high school. And, and so if we were going to embrace that value, we knew that there was certain things we would have to teach them. There would be uh, some philosophies, some practices that we would want to embrace to get them to the next level. But the conflicting value is, I like to win. And, and, and so there was that balance between you know, wanting to teach them the game and to teach it well and, and to be able to transition into high school baseball in two years, and at the same time wanting to win. And, and so Jacob, my son, and I had to, to determine, how do we want to go about this? How do we want to uh, embrace this whole idea of understanding there's a conflicting values, which one will we emphasize? Because we had to decide on one or the other. Second John addresses a similar situation. The immediate issue is what do you do with traveling Christian teachers who teach something other than the fundamental truths of the Christian faith? Also, there's this deal of hospitality, which was something that they were intending and really was an intention and a value of the church in that day. That is, you had teachers coming in that you extend hospitality to them. And so what the conflict really comes to is, is there a way to do both? And if not, which one will we emphasize? Do we emphasize the hospitality or do we emphasize the commitment to fundamental truth? And if you've read 2 John, you know where the writer of 2 John comes down on this. As I said at the beginning, 2 John is likely addressed to the same people 1 John is addressed to and 3 John as well. In all likelihood, 2 John was written at an earlier date than 1 John, and the clue is this. If you read 1 John, there is a comment in 
the second chapter of 1 John, where the writer talks about these traveling teachers that they have already seceded from the church. You know, they've already left the church. In fact, this is what he says. They went out from us, but they were not of us. And if I can, if I can do this right, and I can't. So, you'll just have to listen. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And so that's 1 John. Well, in 2 John, these traveling teachers appear to still be a part of this congregation. And so as we look at this book, we, we see this emphasis really on holding to the truth. The writer wanted them to know that there could be no lasting fellowship with God or with other believers without this basic agreement on what is true, particularly about Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do this morning is look at just the first three verses of 2 John with this in mind, that it really does have a message for today. And as I look at this, there are two things that stand out in my mind. Uh, Maybe as you read it, there will be other things that stand out, but for me, these are the two. The first one is, there are always issues in the church. I mean, do we know that to be true? You know, maybe you go to the church that has absolutely no issues. And if so, you can share with the rest of us how you got to that point. But I know in 30 years of being a pastor, I have never served a church that didn't have some issues. Every church I've been a part of had some issues. I've had some great churches, you know, ones that... God was abundantly active. The Holy Spirit was moving, and still there were some issues. And no doubt that is something that we deal with in the church, and that's what they were dealing with then. We deal with it still today. There are issues always in the church. The second point is this, that we are still called to faithfulness, that even as we deal with the issues in the church, even as we deal with uh, things that, that put us in conflict at times with one another, We're still called to faithfulness. I can tell you this has real meaning to me and to those of you who are in the United Methodist Church now. I serve a United Methodist Church, and we're dealing with this issue around faithfulness. What does it mean to be faithful to what God has called us to? What does it mean to really practice well the gospel of Jesus Christ, to live it out, but to do so in a sense of holding to the doctrine and holding to the truth as it's been revealed to us. And and so what we're seeing in 2 John, we're experiencing in the United Methodist Church, we're experiencing it in a wider context as well. Now, again, maybe I am in the only denomination that has issues. You know, I know some of you are perhaps Nazarenes. Maybe the Nazarenes don't deal with these issues. Maybe they are perfect. Maybe the Wesleyans are, maybe the Free Methodists, maybe the Assemblies of God. Whatever denomination you're in, if you're perfect, let me know, because I want to take that back to my denomination and and help them. But we know that we are called to this faithfulness, even in the midst of dealing with the issues, a faithfulness to what we have already learned, and so we have this commitment to orthodoxy, but also a faithfulness in the way we live. So a call to faithfulness and orthopraxy. And so with both of these, it comes out in this message 
in 2 John. I want to give you the outline that we will uh, hold to over the next couple days. Verses 1 through 3 really serve as an introduction. You know, the writer is saying, uh, this is who I'm talking to, this is what I want to talk about. So he gives an introduction in the first three verses. Verses 4 through 6, uh, I, I've titled this way, The Truth Believed Within. And he gets into, the, in a sense, kind of the, the orthodoxy, the doctrine part of it. Verses 7 through 11 are the truth practiced without. How do we practice what we believe to be the truth? And then verses 12 and 13 are really a personal word of conclusion. And we will get into that uh, as best we can over the next two days. So let me begin 2 John verses 1 through 3. It says this, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. And so it begins with the elder, this one who writes to the church. There's really two ideas or or, or two possibilities uh, that we identify when we look at who is the elder. Now one could be a man that is identified as John the elder. It is really out of uh, this idea that he is different than John the Apostle, who is the other option, but we have John the Elder, and it really comes out of uh, a remark from uh, Papias, who was the bishop of Heropolis. And do any of you happen to know where Heropolis is? Yeah, I didn't either, uh, and, and I'm still not positive. Um, but he wrote in, in, in this book called Oracles of uh, the Lord, or, or Exposition of Oracles of the Lord. And I, I'm not going to read it to you, but let me summarize it. He says, basically, when it comes to his understanding of who is the most reliable witness, he counted three. He said, those who knew Jesus personally were kind of that that first line. They were the most reliable. And then there were those who were followers of those disciples. And and he considered them kind of a a second level. And then there were those who were part of the early church, those who had heard a message from the disciples, uh, or from the disciples of the disciples. And what's interesting is when he talks about the disciples, he mentions many of the disciples, and he mentions John. But then he gets down to the disciples of the disciples, and he mentions a a group of people, and then he gets down to this third level, and he talks about John the elder. And and so the assumption was, uh, among some of the early church writers, was this must be two different people. There's John the apostle and then John the elder. And yet, other than this one remark, there's no other evidence that suggests that there were two different people. That, in fact, he may have been referring to John the Apostle in both cases. So it's possible that we have uh, a a man named John the Elder, who was the writer of 2 John and uh, possibly 3 John, or this is, as I said, the Apostle John. What's interesting as we look at this is what we know from church history. When you think about the 12, what, what I term as Pentecost disciples, so those who were identified as the disciples following Pentecost, of all of them, who is the last one? Who's the one who outlives all the others? Who is it? John. And so it's possible that John, the apostle, refers to himself as the elder. 
or as the elder. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm not going to pick on whoever just had the Ohio State theme playing on their phone, but let's be honest, the Ohio State University. Yeah. Didn't they, didn't they just get like the patent to the? Now, I, I'm concerned now if every time I say it, do I have to pay Ohio State every time I say the? So even saying the elder, am I going to get something from Ohio State saying, hey, you owe us, you, we copyrighted, copyrighted that word. But maybe John refers to himself as the elder because he's the last one, the last of these leaders uh, in the church who were part of the original 12. Now, we understand eldership in, was common in the early church. When we read the, the writings of Paul, he refers to a number of people as elders. He talks about Timothy as an elder. He talks about a man named Silvanus, who may likely have and likely was Silas from the missionary journeys. And so Paul would go into these churches, he would begin them, and then he would put someone in charge. He appointed these elders in each of the churches that he began. And the thought of, uh, in this case, is that John the Apostle is the elder writing from Ephesus. And so he writes these letters, not only the Gospel of John and Revelation, which we know he wrote on the Isle of Patmos, but 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John he writes from potentially or, or possibly from Ephesus. And he's addressing these churches that in many cases he, he's familiar with. He knows who the leaders are, and if you look at 3rd John, he identifies some of the leaders in the church. And he's hitting on this issue of how do you deal with traveling teachers who come in and what they teach is not orthodox doctrine. It's not what we have held to. Uh, it, it is not as, and I quoted it last night in um, the opening message, that what Jude refers to as the faith that has been passed on to us from the saints. And he talks about contending for that. We see that contention, so to speak, here in Second John. He goes on, to the elect lady and her children. Now, on the surface, what's it sound like he's, he's speaking to? In a sense, it sounds like perhaps he's speaking to one person. Is he addressing one person? Now, it's possible that he's talking uh, about one person in particular, but, and, and I will say, we see this in Third John, if you Read the beginning of Third John is really addressed to one person, to Gaius, and the writer, and, and we believe it was John, kind of refers to, here's what I want you to do. You're doing well here. I, I need to deal with this issue. Now, is it possible Second John is addressed like Third John to one person? And again, there's not a whole lot of evidence for that. Rather, it's probably pointing to a group. It certainly seems more fitting based on the way it, it's written. Um, when John Juman comes, he will break down the Greek of all of First uh, Timothy or, or the section he's going to cover with great eloquence. Now, many of you know Dr. Bob Buswell was my Greek professor at Malone, and I know that part of his family is here today. Dr. Buswell was really one uh, of my heroes. The most disappointing moments in my time at Malone is when Dr. Buzzwell would say, Matt, you had this last semester. Go ahead and 
exegete this passage. And I would have to say, Dr. Buswell, I have no clue what this passage says. Now, I say that to say, John will break down the Greek, and he'll do so with great eloquence. If Dr. Buswell was here, he would do the same thing. I, I can't do it, so I'm just going to give you the best I can with this. And there is a, a, a Greek word in there, where, or a Greek, that the writer, whereas where he says you in, in context determines whether he's talking about second person singular or second person plural, if you see this in Greek, it breaks it down and shows that transition. He does that throughout this book, where he transitions from you in a second person singular to all of you. And so the idea is that he's probably addressing a group, and so often he uses all of you when he speaks to this group. He also uses the phrase, some of your children. Now, is it possible that he, again, is talking to one person, who has some of her children who are following and some who aren't. Well, it's possible. I, I would imagine if we were to become very honest and transparent with one another, we would talk about in our families there are possibly some who are following and some who aren't. And so it's possible he's talking to one person, but in all likelihood, again, he's talking about a group. And when he talks about some of your children are following, it could be implying some of the people in the church are not, or he could just be saying, the ones I've met of your church, I'm glad to see that they're following the gospel. They are doing and living out the gospel as it was taught to them. And then he goes to this in, in, verses, uh, in verse 3, this kind of long extension, grace, mercy, and peace be with us through God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ in truth and love. So he gives us this nice bundle of grace and mercy and peace and truth and love, and he puts it all together. And I think what we see here is that for John, truth was synonymous with basic Christian doctrine. So truth is synonymous with basic Christian doctrine. He said when it comes to truth, we look at this doctrine we've been taught and what we believe. The word truth embodied all that Jesus was and did and is. And more so for John, Christ himself is truth embodied. And so when we read 2 John, what we need to come at and keep in mind is this idea that for John, all of truth is contained in Jesus Christ. And so anything outside of that runs the risk of not being truth. And so he holds true to this thing. He holds fast. Jesus is all about truth. And truth is all about Jesus. And I think as we see this, we see that John believed really in the prayer that Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you remember the Gospel of John, you, you can picture that scene where Jesus is kneeling in the Garden of Gethsemane and he begins to pray. And John reports this long, lengthy prayer, the high priestly prayer of Jesus, where he really reveals his heart and his desire and, and his hope for these disciples who will follow him or who have been following him and will follow him on into the future. And I want to read this to you because I really think as John was writing Second John, possibly this prayer was on his mind. And it says this in Jesus' prayer, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. 
I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. I think as we hear that prayer, we see that truth and why truth was so vitally important to John. Now the issue they're dealing with here in 2 John is around teachers who are coming and questioning the incarnation. They really question, has Christ come in the flesh? And if he didn't, what does that mean? And so John, in writing this, drills down on that principle of this belief in Jesus as God in human flesh. He says his word is absolute truth. And that really believing in that is that first step towards the oneness that Jesus had prayed for. So when Jesus is praying that they will be one, the oneness comes in that abiding in the truth. And we think about what binds us together. And so let me ask you to respond to this. What binds us together as the people of God? What's that? Love. Love's a great thing. What else? What what binds us together as Christians? Trinity. What else? Jesus. Okay, so we have these things that bind us together. What about compatibility? Does compatibility bind us together? No, probably not. Are we always compatible? Is there any diversity in the church? And I'm not talking about, you know, we, we can talk about diversity in a number of ways. So it's probably not compatibility. Was there compatibility in the early church? I mean, think about it. What groups are represented in the early church? Certainly you have Jews, Gentiles, and Gentiles is that everybody who's not a Jew. And and so when we think of that, we start thinking of different groups that were in the early church, different nationalities, different, different ethnicities. What about the modern church? What's the diversity that exists in the modern church? Yeah, certainly there there are preferences. Um, I won't ask you, but uh, in your church, do they only sing hymns? Are there any of us who would say, I wish they would only sing hymns? Probably. We have, so, you know, what we sing, the way we worship. I went to the church I'm pastoring now two and a half years ago. We moved right in the midst of uh, the COVID pandemic. Would you think of all times to move? Wouldn't that be a great time to move? Go to a new place. And when we got there, um, we, we were online. That's all we did. For the first probably about five months, we were, we were online every Sunday. And if any of you have, uh, you know, I know some of you are pastors, some of you are, are speakers. There's a great difference when you are online speaking to an empty sanctuary, except for one person who's back in the media booth going like this, that my microphone's not on. 
Okay? So, uh, and that does happen here too, occasionally. It was interesting to come out of that five months of being online to going in person. And that difference between those two experiences. But what came out of that is people saying, you know, this would be a great time for us to change the way we do worship services here. And had I taken every suggestion, our worship services would last about two hours. Because we had some who said, we need to recite the Apostles' Creed. We need to recite the Lord's Prayer. We should do the Gloria Patri. We should sing more praise choruses. We should sing more hymns. You should preach shorter. You should preach longer. I was the only one saying you should preach longer, but I consider myself part of the community of faith. And so with all of that, we understand there's diversity in the, early church, uh, in, in the modern church. And yet, is that what binds us together? Well, no, it's probably not that, obviously. What about having a common goal? Does that bind us together? Many years ago, I was part of the Lions Club in one of the communities I was in, and um, my kids love to, to, to tease me about the greeting that we used in the Lions Club. Are any of you in Lions Club? Okay. What is the greeting in Lions Club? After, when they call the roll call? Yeah, and what do they say? What, what's the response? I don't know. We don't do that. Okay, well, maybe we were the only group that did it. Okay, our response was, bite them. Oh, that's for, yeah. Oh, is that something else? Oh, really? Oh, we said it all the time. Oh, we, 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 we were biting one another constantly <laughs> in that Lions Club. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you, for you, it was, it's kind of that formal vote. Yes. And they call your... Saying, yeah. Okay. Maybe the group I was in, we were renegade, and, and I didn't realize it. But that group had a common goal. You know, there was something about being a part of that Lions Club, at least in, um, Cl- uh, in Clinton County, Ohio, that we had a common goal together, and, and it, that was something that was binding us there. And yet, that's not a strong enough bond in the local church. It wasn't then, and it's not now. And so we talk about what binds us together, and really what it is is this deeply held commitment to the truth as it's revealed in and through Jesus and what's interesting, or at least what I find interesting, is that when John talks about this, he combines truth and love. That it is this commitment to truth that produces love. That it's out of this commitment to truth that love arises. In fact, John Stott said this, We shall never increase the love which exists between us by diminishing the truth which we hold in common. Now, that's something that needs repeated. That we shall never increase the love which exists between us by diminishing the truth which we hold in common. When we think about the way that the, the church often operates, do we ever hear an appeal to we need to love one another and leave it there. So there's not this sense of we need to hold to the truth and love and our commitment to one another rises out of that, but rather we need to love one another. 
And the way we love one another is by not holding as tight to some things. So we don't hold tight to certain things because we want to love one another. And it seems to me that, that Second John is addressing that, that love is not increased by diminishing the truth. But rather, as we lift truth up, we're bound together in love. I want to read something to you, and I want you to, to tell me where you think this comes from. It's a description of an entity, and it says this, our whole purpose is the worship of God through the promotion of scriptural holiness as understood in the Wesleyan Arminian tradition and the conversion of sinners and in the fulfillment of this purpose. Does anyone know where that comes from? It's the constitution of Camp Syker. It's not something we have to memorize as board members. I just happen to, to know that. Um, because when I became a board member, Dr. Gary Campbell, one of the first things he did was give me the Constitution and said, you need to read this. Camp Syker exists for this sole purpose, the promotion of scriptural holiness. We are not the local church. We're not a denomination. We're not, a, as somebody told me once, that weird cult that's out on Syker Road with all the white buildings. <laughs> but we exist for this purpose, the promotion of scriptural holiness. I wonder at times when you look at uh, the sign behind me that says 152 years, would those who began what became Camp Syker in 1870 recognize what we have here. Now, in obvious ways, no, it, it would be strange to them. You know, I, I don't know that we can live out what it means to be Camp Syker as we did 152 years ago and necessarily make the connections to 2022. But I do wonder when we talk about the legacy and the heritage of an entity like Camp Syker, would those who began it recognize that it's the same thing, that we have held to the purposes that Camp Syker is supposed to hold to? And knowing that some of you who are here are fellow board members, it's incumbent upon us to see that that is truth and reality, that we are holding to the purposes for which Camp Syker exists. It's interesting, and some of you know that the United Methodist Church is going through a very tumultuous time now. And I realize that over the next two days, you're going to hear a lot in connection with the United Methodist Church. And you know, I apologize if you're not United Methodist and what's happening in the United Methodist Church really doesn't affect you. Um, and Yes, it ought to concern all of us. A number of years ago, I was in a uh, post-master's program at Mount Vernon Nazarene, and I was with a, a lot of wonderful Nazarene people, and it was all pastors. And let's be honest, pastors are a weird group anyway. I mean, we, we just need to live that out, and I know some of you are pastors. We have to embrace it. We can be odd. But to be the odd one in an odd group 
mean, I was doubly odd because I was the only United Methodist in a group of Nazarenes, and, and sometimes it, it felt like they were looking at me like, you know, I, I was extraterrestrial. And they would say, well, help us understand what's going on in the United Methodist Church. And that was about 10 years ago. And, and if you can go back 10 years and what was going on uh, in 2012 in the United Methodist Church, you might remember that was really, it started to ramp up at that point. All that we're seeing now was ramping up then. And I remember one of them said, that will never happen in the Church of the Nazarene. Now, I'm not going to ask those of you who are Nazarene, is that true? But my guess would be that even the Church of the Nazarene is dealing with some of the same issues that the United Methodist Church has been dealing with. As we started this whole idea in, in the United Methodist Church of what it means to, to be part of that denomination, we've had to go back to what's our purpose. You know, what was the purpose that John Wesley, Francis Asbury, Thomas Koch, all those founders of the, what became the United Methodist Church, what was their intention? What was their purpose? And are we holding to it in our current iteration? Is this what they intended? And I think that's a challenge for all of us, especially as we read Scripture, to say, how do we take the truth that comes in Scripture and live it out in a culture that in many ways is dissimilar from the biblical culture, that has different values to some, in some respects, that understands life in a different way. Perhaps the challenge is to look at this and really to say not only what are the differences, but how similar are we? You know, we deal with some of the same issues they dealt with, and how do we deal with them? And so I want to draw this back to Camp Psyker and to why we're here. If our sole purpose is the worship of God through the promotion of scriptural holiness, not only are we still doing that, but I think that becomes the rationale or the result of why Camp Psyker is what it is, why it produces what it does. I think probably most of us could tell stories of the closeness and the unity and the freedom we sense here. And it's because of that commitment to the truth. So we experience that in Camp Psyker. Some of you have grown up here. You know, I will turn 55 this year. 54 of my 55 years I've been here. You know, I've grown up here. It's interesting to be on the other side. You know, I look out, Ken Keene was not only my counselor, but my, I'm not even sure, Ken, what do I call you? My Genghis Khan as tent crew, which was the precursor to tractor crew. Tom Keene was my youth director. Now I look around here, and on the one hand, I, I was down in the office and, and looking at the, the brochures, and, and if you've never done that, it's fascinating. But to look at some of the Bible teachers here. And these are the people who you know, were bigger than life when I was a kid. You know, we had people like Delbert Rose and Dennis Kinlaw. I mean, these guys were giants. And now to be on the other side, 
and to experience what it looks like to be part of this camp and to have a hand in helping us hold tight to what we believe to be the truth. And I think it's imperative not only for us as a camp, but for us as followers of Jesus to do the same thing. That really when Jesus talks about oneness and he prays for that oneness, the oneness is something that really we is created by this commitment to the truth. And in fact, to go back to, to what he's getting at here in Second John is that that oneness is something we are incapable of experiencing with someone who doesn't acknowledge the basic beliefs of the Christian faith. It's a different point of reference. It's a different person who it all refers back to. And I think this is part of the reason that when John writes this, he says, don't even exercise the common Christian practice of hospitality with these false teachers. He said, you can't hold to the truth and allow them to come and teach. And that's the purpose, and, and, and that's really what he gets at here in Second John. But as we draw back to this, it's interesting to me that as he talks about this, and I love how he does this. I don't know how many of you write letters still, but I like the way John does this. He says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. Who would not want that? I mean, who wouldn't want grace, mercy, and peace will be with us? And yet, what's John do? He draws back to the source. God the Father and Jesus Christ his Son. But that's where our grace, mercy, and peace comes from. It is not from some other source. It's not from what the world can provide. But rather, it is this reality that through Jesus Christ and through God the Father, we have grace, mercy, and peace. And it's out of that that truth and love become a reality in the church. When you look at the church of our day, what are some of the issues we face? I'll give you that opportunity. What are some of the issues we face in the church today? Besides what color the carpet going to be? Yes, what color the carpet. That's, that's, that's a big issue. I, you know, that's why in 30 years of being a pastor, I've only gone through one building project in the church because I didn't want to deal with all that. Um, although I, I, I have good memories of, of building this. Uh, the, the one church that I was in that we did a building project, we had two construction companies in the church. And so we had tremendous experience and, and know-how when it came to building. What was interesting is that neither one of them agreed, neither agreed with the other one on how it ought to be built. And so they said to me, you're the pastor, you get to decide. Well, here's the truth. I don't know anything about building. I see the end result, but I don't know how we get there. I feel that sometimes here at Syker. I come back and I think, how'd all this work get done? And then I get reminded, well, you're a pastor. You really aren't familiar with manual labor anyway. So, all that. Um, yeah, so I'm sorry, that was a bit of a rabbit trail. But yeah, some of those are those very mundane things. But what are some of the other issues we face in the church today? 
Okay, well, Rosa, give, us, uh, give me an example of that. Where do you see that idolatry happening? Okay. Okay. All right. All right. So, recreation, yeah. Okay, we, we deal with the reality uh, of kids' sports being played on Sunday. I share with you that I coached baseball. You want to know what day we played ba- uh, We had games every week? Sunday afternoon. And I told them if I have an altar call, we may have to hold off on the first inning. But, yeah, I mean, that, that there are certain things that get in the way. Yeah, Heather. Okay, idolatry of the church facilities. Um, Again, I'll go back to this whole thing with disaffiliation. Part of this process is who gets the building. And in the church I'm in, we're in the midst of uh, doing a, a fairly expensive addition to the church. Uh, not, we're not building on. We're actually repairing something, but it's expensive. And last week, somebody said to me, why are we putting all this money in if we're not going to get the building? And we had a very short discussion about Idolatry of buildings. Okay, what else? What else? What other issues do we deal with in the church today? Doctrine in the Free Will Baptist Church. Okay, so doctrine. Mm-hmm. Eternal salvation. Okay. Versus being able to lose it. Okay. Just try a difference mm-hmm. of opinion of what that Bible says. Sure, sure, right. Keep going. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Trying to look like the outside world to draw people in. Yeah. Okay. So that uh, appropriation of culture. How much do we want to be attractional? Uh, sure, absolutely. Okay. So we, we think we, we, we know what we need to know, and why do I need to know anything else? Okay, yeah. Others? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Certainly, you, you have the whole issues of human sexuality and how that's affected the United Methodist Church and, and how we're dealing with that. Um, but again, I, I want to say let's not make an assumption that's only one denomination's issue. I mean, that, again, you go back to the culture. What, how much of that? And, and I think that is the challenge. And, and you wonder, you know, as we read Scripture and we seek to apply it, how does that speak to those issues of culture, especially in this one, um, in Second John and, and, and really in Third John, uh, well, in First John for that matter, how does this apply to how we live out the Scriptures? So, yeah, again, and, and I go back to what Steve said last night, that when we think about why am I here? And I shared with Steve last night uh, after the service, um, I asked myself that question. Why am I here? Is it because I've been here for 54 years? Is it because I'm the president and that if I wasn't here, somebody would say, why is he not here? Or am I here because I come in that attitude of response? Lord, I know you're doing something. And it's a corporate thing, but it's also a personal thing. And so how am I responding to you? And so I think that's a great question for us as we think about why am I here? What am I hoping to learn? What am I hoping to, to get 
Why am I at Camp Syker? Why do people watch online? You know, I think when we talk about idolatry, I'll confess to you one of my concerns with the camp. Do we come and we worship or we have this idolatry of the Camp Syker experience that may not necessarily have anything to do with being responsive to what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. But I love being here because I've always been here because I see people I don't get to see throughout the year because whatever it is, anything short of I'm coming really at the minimal level to be open to God. Do we fall short of what God really calls us to? You almost feel like I've gone into preaching. And if I have, uh, I only half apologize for that because I'm a preacher, so you know, you're going to get what you get. Uh, plus, I'm not getting paid to do, be your Bible teacher for two days, so you're definitely getting your money's worth. All right, any other issues that we identify um, in the church? Because I, I want us to see this in the context of this. I, I'm always looking um, to find how is what I'm reading applicable. And I understand that, that can sometimes, there, there's a trap in that of thinking, how does this apply to me? Because it becomes very individualized. But really, I think that, that's part of, uh, of our Bible study. Yeah, Aaron. I, I think we as congregations outsource our individual relationship with Christ mm-hmm. to our church leaders. So as, as you're talking about going back to 2 John and what you're talking about, mm-hmm. so we're mm-hmm. talking Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, and certainly I think John was hitting on that issue here. Uh, I think when, when we read Second John, we're really hearing it in response to perhaps a question like that. How do we welcome these people in? Because they, they claim to, to have the truth. So, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. Um, the, the worldview of truth versus what is the biblical. Uh, I, I read uh, a couple days ago, this man was talking about his two little girls. Uh, he had a six-year-old and, and I think a four-year-old. And he said to his, his, his youngest daughter, said something to him along the lines of, um, I don't have to do what you tell me to do. And he said, where did you ever get that idea? And she said, God put it in my heart. <laughs> and he did not respond with laughter. But he looked at her and said, what makes you think God put that in your heart? And she said, that's my truth. He helped her understand what real truth was <laughs> in the moments following that. And he didn't go into detail how he did it, but I think it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, because we identify this is my truth. And if truth is absolute, how can there be individualized truth? 
And, and, and so I think that that's, again, that, that's one of the things we deal with in, in a culture. And we've hit on that in a couple different ways. How do we deal with holding to something that we say, this is truth, and, and living it out, and not saying, well, that, it's truth for me. It may not be truth for you, but it's truth for me. And especially in, in the context of the church, I think we always need to, you know, when we read these epistles, we, we see that they're addressed to, to church people. And, and so we're talking to other church people. So, all right, I have uh, almost 20 after, which is our, our break spot. Tomorrow we're going to cover the rest of Second John. And so I want to encourage you, in the time between now and the start of the morning service at 1030, read all of Second John, and you'll still have five minutes to spare, and you can read Third John and be prepared for whatever time in the future I'll be teaching on Third John. But uh, thank you for being here. Hope you'll be here tomorrow. And then really, I, I do want to encourage you to be here uh, to hear John through the rest of the week. He'll be coming in Saturday night, be here Sunday through Sunday. But, uh, and, and he will be teaching on uh, the torchbearer passages in, in Timothy's books, or, or the books uh, that we title as Timothy's books. Um, and, and if you have been following John along in our monthly devotional, he'll be hitting on some of those same things. So let's pray, and then we will encourage you to be a part of worship at 1030. Lord, thank you for this time together, and we want to hold tight to the truth. Lord, sometimes we need help in discerning how do we extend grace and mercy and love and hospitality to others and safeguard the truth. Because, Lord, we have this worldview and the world value of tolerance and, and we want to be living with, with wide open arms in, in some sense. And yet, Lord, we don't want to bring in things that would detract us and distract us from you. And so give us discernment, give us wisdom, and then, Lord, give us the courage to live it out. Thank you for this time together. We pray your blessing upon the service that will soon take place and for all the services across the grounds, both this day and throughout the remaining days of camp. And we ask it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.